Welcome to The Equality Lens, the podcast dedicated to educating you on equality, diversity and inclusion. Together, we can make a difference in our society. Join host Amrez Khan along with special guests as they share their experiences, discuss their perspectives and thoughts. Please note, comments shared are the thoughts of Amrez and his guests and not that of any organisations they are employed by or associated with. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the next episode of the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome somebody who is having a huge impact on people. He's a clinical psychologist by background, and he's also working as a lecturer for a local university in Manchester. And let's not forget, He's turning into quite a celebrity with a new book being launched very soon. All that and much more is what we'll be talking about. Please welcome Dr. Brendan Dunlop. Hey, hello. <laughs> hello. Was that was that all right to give you a start off uh, intro there, Brendan, was it? That is um, very kind of you to say those things. Um, yeah, so thanks for that. I don't know if I fully buy into that at the moment, but um, very kind. Oh no, I've been um, stalking you, as I said before, <laughs> looking into your profiles. You've got a website set up, which may I say, looks very profesh. Oh, so, thank you. I had a good little sneak. Yeah, I know. Very, very good. So yeah, it's um, really exciting to have you on today. We'll be talking about your new book very soon, because I've got lots to ask you about that. Mm. Um, and I guess, firstly, just for our listeners, it would be good to know if you could just tell us a bit more about what you do and the impact you're making on people. Yeah, so, um, well, so as you kind of touched upon, I, I, I work as a, um, as a clinical psychologist in a, an NHS uh, trust in the northwest of England. Um, and I also work as a, a lecturer in clinical psychology. Um, so I guess, uh, and actually I should say as well, uh, just outside of that, I also do some um, work with um, younger people, so kind of adolescents, um, and a, a chunk of those adolescents that I work with um, are either from the LGBTQ plus community um, or, you know, have some kind of difficulties which are connected to other minoritized aspects of themselves. So I guess in my university role, I um, I do teaching, I do lecturing, um, and I do do lecturing on um, LGBTQ plus mental health. Um, and as well as that, I supervise the or several research projects for trainee clinical psychologists. Um, one of which is looking at um, bisexuality and non-suicidal self-injury and um, we're looking at the role of self-esteem in that particular project and then for the HIV project which is another kind of um, project which is connected to the LGBTQ plus world we're looking at how certain groups that use HIV services and um, how they basically experience the care they get and what what helps them to seek help from from services um, so those research projects are kind of in their infancy we're kind of developing them or I should say the trainees are developing them um, 
alongside myself and the other supervisors. But in terms of, you know, the impact that we're hoping that that's going to have on people's lives, research is kind of an odd one because sometimes it can feel quite removed and quite zoomed out from um, clinical practice. And I think that's why I really like the fact that my, well, both my NHS role, but also my other role working with some younger people allows me to um, put some of the research ideas that I um, think about at university or that we are looking at at university into practice with um, real people. So the impact is kind of, sometimes it's direct if I'm working with someone one-to-one, sometimes it's making a difference or trying to make a difference with someone that's, you know, in front of me or, you know, over Zoom. Uh, And sometimes the impact is slightly, slightly more removed But we're hoping, of course, that further down the line, the findings and um, whatever comes from that research will hopefully help people in the future and also maybe help services in the future to uh, think about the best ways to engage with um, LGBTQ plus people. Sounds great. Some really interesting programmes of work there, Brendan. And it, it must be fab, mustn't it, to work with, you know, frontline people who need your support as a psychologist in the NHS, but then to also be able to educate, promote, raise awareness through your university role. So that must really complement itself together. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think that's what I really like and love about being a clinical psychologist is clinical psychologists are trained to kind of be research practitioners. So we're trained to be Mm. able to do the research and also do the therapy side of things so that we can, yeah, blend those two worlds and walk between those um, those different spheres, if you like. And yeah, be able to look at the practice and go, actually, there's a bit of a gap here what can we do about it and then step into our researcher role with our researcher hat on and try and think about how we could design a study or evaluate the effectiveness of something or just kind of you know hear people's experiences of things and then be able to meaningfully marry those two uh, things together so yeah you're right they really do complement each other and i really like i feel really privileged i think to to be able to have roles which allow me to work yeah in both of those worlds at the same time like i said sounds great so thank you for sharing that with us today and one of the things that i think will be really good to find out from you and i see quite a lot in my role as head of equality diversity and inclusion is Uh, mental health um especially specifically people from an lgbt plus background and the mental health. You know, we see lots of stats from Mind, Stonewall, and a number of other organisations that suggest people who are LGBT suffer from poor mental health outcomes. And I was really interested, because I know, like you say, you're doing lots of research, and you're working on on this area. So, what, you know, what do you think? Can you sort of talk me through why you think this might be the case? Why LGBT populations tend to have poor mental health yeah absolutely so i think um the trap that we could probably fall into is thinking that there's something inherent Mm. within 
um, LGBTQ plus people that then gives them this almost like um, predisposition to develop mental health difficulties, mm, mm. almost suggesting that it's something innate inside of them. But actually, I think you and I would probably both agree that the world is um, set up and operates for the benefit of certain types of people with certain identities. And I'm thinking when, when I say that of mostly kind of white, uh, cisgender, able-bodied, heterosexual men, really. And anything which kind of falls outside of that dominant um, kind of social story, if you like, about um, yeah, how the world's set up and how the world should operate, uh, can, yeah, experience that felt sense of, of, of difference, I think. So the reason I start with that kind of little bit of preamble is because it's really tricky living and navigating a world that's not designed for you. And it's really stressful doing that. If we think a little bit about the history of, you know, um, LGBTQ plus rights in the UK, um, obviously there have been historical acts of law um, that have very much impacted upon the freedoms of LGBTQ plus people, starting from, you know, when uh, homosexuality was criminalised. Uh, and even slightly more recently, we're thinking potentially in the 80s about um, Section 28, which was a, a piece of government legislation which um, prohibited the promotion of homosexuality, as the wording of that policy uh, said and used. Um, so for a long while, and that was all the way until the early 2000s when that was repealed, for a long while, actually, even just the teaching of the fact that you know, LGBTQ plus people exist. That wasn't even spoken about in school. So you imagine if you're a young kind of LGBTQ plus person in school and you recognize that you're different, you recognize that the world is not set up for you. And actually there are even policies and laws which kind of criminalize parts of your identity or restrict parts of your freedom. My goodness, that is enough to really cause people to feel anxious, people to feel low in mood, people to worry about what other people think of them, to be really angry maybe at the world, but not know what to do with that. And sometimes it's easier in a way to be angry with yourself and think, why am I so different? And that's why sometimes we might see people hurting themselves in different ways because it's much, it can be much easier to direct that kind of anger towards yourself than to actually direct it towards the world because it feels like such a huge task, doesn't it? Trying to, mm. I guess, own space in, in a society and a, within structures that just don't create that space for you. So I think, to answer your question, I know that's quite a long-winded way of, of, of arriving at this conclusion, but I think sometimes some of those background bits of information is, can be helpful. Um, I think we see disproportionate mental health outcomes because people experience um, the stress of being a minoritized person. 
Um, and there are different theories about this, but I think that understanding that you're different and the discrimination that you can experience from other people, um, the rejection you can feel from the people that are close to you can be really tricky to manage. And I think that is potentially why rates of uh, anxiety are definitely elevated within the LGBTQ plus community. And also substance use. We know that LGBTQ plus people um, use um, tobacco and alcohol more than um, cisgender heterosexual people. Um, and also uh, more illicit substances, which are maybe illegal, also are used quite a lot. Again, potentially just to manage the stress of living in this world that's not necessarily designed for you. So I think there are there are lots of reasons why we see this difference. And yeah, it's important for us when we're thinking about this to really zoom out and think what's going on in society, what's going on around people when we are, I guess, ultimately considering how to support people as well. I really like the way you explained that, Brendan, actually. I thought that was really good. And it is really sad and quite baffling to think some of these laws and the way people were treated were going on for such a long period of time. Mm. I was looking the other day, well, I said the other day, a couple of weeks ago, about when LGBT, well, predominantly gay men, they weren't allowed to give blood for yeah, such yeah. a long period of time. And it was, I think, until fairly recently, now things have changed. So it really, really makes you think. And I think this is such a timely discussion that we've just had on the podcast as we head into LGBT History Month next month. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. we look back at the Stonewall riots and everything yeah. else that's happened over the years. And although we're not there yet, we are making some good progress with this. And it's really sad, you know, anybody listening to this podcast who may be suffering or feeling, as you say, that feeling of difference and not being accepted. I think what I want to say is, you're not alone and please mm. do reach out for for support and get some help and talk to people who are there to help you become you know and help you help you continue being the amazing people that you are it's so absolutely. sad to, to hear some of that absolutely yeah i completely agree and you're right it's um it's really interesting the the blood ban uh, if you like because um you know, I think that the whole the whole reason that came about was because there was this kind of real worry that, you know, if gay or bisexual men donated blood, that it might, um, there might be HIV within the blood mm. because of um, the fact that, you know, HIV is disproportionately prevalent within the LGBTQ plus community. But actually, we know that, uh, and I say this from someone that's worked briefly in HIV services, that actually there's lots of demographic groups that have mm. HIV and that live with HIV. Um, and the rates of, actually very recently, some figures showed um, that the rates of diagnosis in uh, gay, bisexual men, and also men that have sex with men, those rates of diagnosis of HIV have actually dropped during the pandemic um, within uh, that particular demographic. So, you know, that 
particular policy, that that particular um, story that you've just kind of given um, is absolutely rooted in that kind of mm. in, in, in homophobia, really. And you're right, it's just very recently been changed. Um, but still, I think there is the there's still implicit messages and implicit feelings that people have around that. Um, and yeah, it's that's 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 a really good example that you've given of how those types of policies can really affect us because how does it feel, I guess, for someone going to donate blood and having been told by that person taking blood, oh, I'm really sorry, you can't donate because of who you are. You know, that's a really tricky thing to actually confront. And of course, you're then going to go home and think, why me? Why did I have to be born like this? What is it about me that's wrong? And that sense of shame is huge. So that is just one example you've given, but we can replicate that across so many different other examples. Um, so yeah, it's really important to keep our finger on the pulse about how historical policies and practices can still potentially affect our mental health, um, even if we're not aware of it today. Yeah, and I think ultimately for me, it is, or it was discrimination. You yeah. were discriminating some against somebody because of, of, you know, their sexual orientation. And I've been watching lots of, well, TV shows like Pose and It's a yeah. Sin, and yeah. they've been really educational, I think, for me. And I'm, yeah, aren't they just, and other, other people as well, to learn more about LGBT history, and recognize mm -hmm. and really celebrate history. I think sometimes people think that with LGBT history, it's just glitter and sparkles, and it's so mm. much more. There's, yeah. you know, things happened for you know for a reason, and there was pain, there was hurt, there was anguish, and we have to learn from that and recognize yeah. it's not just a massive pride party. That's a part of celebrating, who, you know, who LGBT people are, but there's so much more to it as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bang on. I agree. <laughs> uh, thanks. I like you. You can come back again, Brendan. <laughs> Thank you. you. I'd love to. Okay. <laughs> so on, in the last question, you talked a bit about uh, mental health struggles and why perhaps LGBT people go through them. And mm. I was really keen to know, and, you know, in my role, where I work at the moment, we, we're doing quite a lot of work around health inequalities, which is, mm. I think, what we're touching on here. Absolutely. And just looking at how we can support the LGBTQT plus community to access mental health support when they need it. Have you had any thoughts or experiences around that, Brendan? Yeah, so I think, um, and I, 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 I touch upon this a little bit in the book that I've done as well, which I know we'll, we'll maybe touch upon a bit later. But I think it's really important for, I guess, mental health services and physical health services to first of all acknowledge that maybe LGBTQ plus people and that particular community might not access support as much because healthcare has not always been kind to them. So I really feel like sometimes the narrative can be pushed of, oh, you know, come and seek support, come and see us, we're here to help you. But actually behind that, and what a lot of LGBTQ plus people feel is the blood ban. 
they mm. feel the fact that actually for a long time you know for for gender diverse people trans non-binary people when they're filling out forms there hasn't been an option for them to select their gender identity properly mm. conversion therapy is a huge shameful legacy that hangs over us even now and we're still blum and debating this in parliament and stuff which is just astounding that this is still being thought about but that there is is, is a healthcare trauma that's that's the LGBTQ plus community reaching out and trying to access support from a feeling from a place of shame and, you know, hopelessness sometimes. And actually, sometimes therapists have offered this so-called conversion therapy, which we know is non-evidence based, we know is harmful, we know is abusive. So why, actually, if that's the legacy that health services have hanging over them, will a young or even an older lgbtq plus people or person why why are they going to be motivated to come and you know freely and willfully trust us so first of all we need to start from that position that healthcare has done lgbtq plus people wrong in the past and we need to apologize and acknowledge that mm. uh, i mean <laughs> the whole kind of you know discussion of people that are trans non-binary and gender diverse i guess we're probably not going to have even time to talk about today but you know the actual um trauma that i think that particular subgroup of the lgbtq plus community have to manage and deal with uh, because of the way that services are structured is really really traumatizing and it can be re-traumatizing for people that have tried to get support and have been pushed back and have been put on super long waiting lists but that's maybe a conversation for another day um so that's the first part, part of call acknowledge that we as services are not um always the most um accessible uh places <laughs> for for lgbtq plus people to access and feel safe in and i think we can also, as mental and physical health trusts, do more outreach into the LGBTQ plus communities to help actually um, break down some of those historical um, barriers and challenges. I'm a big fan of um, alternative ways of engaging with the LGBTQ plus community. So, you know, I very much think that we should be advertising our um, NHS and also kind of, you know, more third sector charity independent services in places that we know LGBTQ plus people will go to. Now, you know, a big, a big part of LGBTQ plus life, um, whether we like it or not, I guess, is um, the kind of uh, clubbing, um, you know, drinking culture which you know can exclude a lot of lgbtq plus people that don't drink um though there is a large proportion that we know that will you know drink and use alcohol and go to those bars and, and spaces so actually i think as services we need to be advertising you know um, helplines we need to be advertising um confidential um you know counseling and treatment potentially in nightclubs and bars I think we also need to be doing um, engagement work with the LGBTQ plus communities and actually hearing directly from them what ways services can adapt or engage with them in different ways. 
I think as services, we need to be thinking about um, digital ways of engagement. You know, I guess COVID has, has taught us that that is completely feasible. And actually for some um, younger LGBTQ plus people, actually using apps and Zoom and things like this is, is second nature because they've kind of grown up using that. So we need to think very much about how we can be dynamic and how we can offer appointments, um, not just within working hours, but also outside of working hours. Because, um, again, you know, LGBTQ plus people like anyone really could work shifts. They could work um, different, uh, you know, different hours, different it, work in different industries that don't follow a typical um nine to five kind of work pattern. So we need to be able to offer services that meet their needs at different times of the day. Um, and yeah, I guess crucially as well, um, really involving LGBTQ plus people in the creation of new services, which are potentially a bit more bespoke um, and a bit more tailored to the needs of the specific community. Um, so yeah, having actually those voices embedded um, right from the start can make sure that we don't repeat trauma we don't you know reenact uh you know previous situations or experiences that people have had which have been really unhelpful so that we can really hit the mark on you know bespoke offers and of support to the lgbtq plus community when they feel they need it so hopefully, you know, that I know that, that's again, you know, there's 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 lots of different things I've I've kind of thrown out there. But I think as well it's there are lots of different things that need to happen. <laughs> it's not just a, a one size fits all simple solution. And that's why I think I've yeah, in my mind at least, there's there's several different things that I think we need to be doing as, as healthcare services uh, to support the community. Some- Great ideas there. Sounds sounds amazing, Brendan. And again, you won't be surprised to know that I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> I think sometimes there's that whole, oh, this community is hard to reach. And I hate that phrase because it sounds like we're blaming people from that community because we can't reach out to them. And mm. I love some of the good examples that you gave there. Quite innovative examples of how you can do that and what you can do because those communities as you've said before may not want to engage with you because of things that have happened in the past so how are you going to break those barriers down and talk to those people and I find that really really important so yeah just touching on what you've said and sort of nodding along as you've been talking yeah, I, I think you kind of summed it up in that idea of trust. You know, there needs to be a rebuilding mm. of trust between healthcare and the LGBTQ plus community. Not just this community. You know, I'm also thinking about kind of black, you know, Asian, yeah. Indigenous yeah. people yeah. of colour. You know, there's there's this huge um, reparative work that's needed there too, and they will have you know their their own specific stories of um, traumatizing healthcare, and of course there will be people that overlap both of those categories, you know, that have those kind of intersecting identities where they might be LGBTQ plus and they might be from a kind of minoritized uh, or a a racially minoritized um, group. So yeah, a position of trust is essential. Um, We need to Mm, get mm. LGBTQ plus people trusting 
healthcare again and knowing that their concerns are going to be taken seriously that they're going to be mm. respected that their pronouns and their agenda that their, their gender identity will be respected and that yeah practitioners will also crucially have an understanding of parts of lgbtq plus culture um which yeah uh, is is not necessarily pathological you know sometimes mm. you can you know people in the lgbtq plus community might turn up to a you know a, a healthcare appointment and they might be in a very different type of relationship to what we are used to seeing maybe in mm. kind of more traditional monogamous you know heterosexual relationships and actually that in and of itself is not wrong there's nothing wrong with that and i think sometimes as healthcare professionals we need to check our own assumptions and our own biases so that we don't inadvertently discriminate against people and pathologize things which don't need pathologizing mm. um so yeah position of trust is absolutely needed yeah no i i um absolutely agree with what you're saying so thank you so much for all your thoughts on those questions some really good insights there and i know that you're becoming a bit of a celebrity as I said at the start of the episode, because Brendan, you're releasing your own book. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how this has happened. <laughs> it's kind of, um, I think it was like during that first uh, lockdown that I think we all experienced where I had a bit of like a pang of motivation. Um, mm. Yeah, because for a long time, I've been thinking about um, how we can support LGBTQ plus people, especially because we know, as we've just been talking about, that a whole bunch of LGBTQ plus people will not be accessing mental health support for a variety of reasons. It might be because actually they're just not even, uh, they haven't embraced that part of their identity yet, or they are worried about being outed, or they're worried about their parents finding out, or there could be tons of stuff going on. So I thought there's actually no resource that I can find online when I'm Googling that someone can order, maybe even discreetly, to their house from a, a, a bookstore and use as their own personal mental health resource so that they can scribble on it, they can fill out bits of the activities on there, they can keep diaries, they can, you know, test out little uh, tips and tricks that I give or you know evidence-based strategies that can reduce maybe anxiety or improve people's moods and I thought even the resources that are out there are really not um, tailored to LGBTQ plus people they are they were developed for a kind of um, heterosexual uh, population and they don't pick up on the nuances of the LGBTQ plus experience. So that's why this book idea was born. Um, mm -hmm. You know, before lockdown, it was born. And then I was, I, I thought, actually, when lockdown hit, and I know everyone responded to lockdown in different ways. Some people felt lots of motivation. A lot of people are very understandably felt very demotivated because it was a very anxious time. But I think during that time, because, um, you know, we were inside the house a lot, um, my partner plays a lot of video games so i had quite a lot of time i guess to think about this idea a bit more and i mm. thought actually i think lgbtq plus people would potentially find some use in this so i think i just need to do this i think i need to stop 
thinking about it <laughs> and worrying about it being perfect and worrying about what people are going to think of it and actually just try and get something out there um and then people can i guess think about the parts of it that work for them and the parts of it that don't and hopefully i've written it in a way which is so uh, it, it draws on lots of different psychological therapies and lots of different approaches to mental health care that fingers crossed everyone that is experiencing some kind of you know identity difficulty or a relationship difficulty or a difficulty with their mental health could pick up the book and find something in there that would help them in some way so that's the reason why I, I kind of try to include lots of different stuff in it and um yeah make it as broadly applicable as i as i could it looks really fabulous brendan i mean i love the color purple so i was like yes <laughs> yes 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 and um there's some sections of the book i think you've put on your twitter page Mm. just a page or two and I was when I was stalking you earlier I was <laughs> reading and it's written in such an easy to understand way I think some books sometimes can be quite academic but this book is really sort of that self-help tool to get people thinking and to ultimately support people with their mental health so I'm quite excited when it when it when it gets published just for our listeners, could you let us know what the name of the book is and when it's going to be published, Brendan? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called The Queer Mental Health Workbook, um, and it's going to be published on the 21st of March um, in a, oh, actually, uh, two months today. Um, and and uh, yeah, it's... Um, yeah like it's available online from lots of different um, online um, retailers for pre-order but it hasn't actually hit the shelves of any um, in-store book uh, bookstores at the moment uh, but it will do on the 21st of march well i'm going to be buying a copy oh thank and you I'm very not, much and i'm not just saying that because you're on the call actually because i think it's a really good book and although i think it's targeted at those uh lgbt people who are struggling i think yeah. it's quite insightful even if you're an ally or maybe a parent of an lgbt you know uh, son or daughter or a non-binary person yeah. you really can take a lot of things from the book and yeah. you can educate yourself as well so i think it's a really good read for lots of people and i remain keen on improving my own education well keep an eye out for the book as brendan's mentioned 21st of march get that date in your diary and start logging on and purchasing it online or in stores when it comes out just a massive thank you brendan for taking the time out and coming and to talk to me today it's been really insightful so thank you so much oh my absolute pleasure i'm raising yeah thanks so much for asking me to be on Thanks for listening to this episode of The Equality Lens. Please remember to hit like, subscribe and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, stay safe and look after one another. The Equality Lens. Listen. Learn. Be better. Be better. Be better.